You're listening to The Recovery, a series of conversations about rediscovering the ancient faith in order to reclaim our own. Well, hello. I hope this finds you well. We've been gone for a minute. In fact, uh, it's been May since we've posted a podcast, so um, it's time to really get back into this uh, with earnest. So we're going to try and do this at least on a weekly basis. Um, I've been spending some time uh, over the last few years, especially, um, and it's becoming more important, I think, in in the life of the church that I pastor. Um, asking the question, how do how do we restore? How do we renew? Right? Uh, how do we renew the church in general? Uh, the church, particularly in the West, in America. Uh, and more locally and practically speaking, like how, how do how do we as uh, people in local churches, how do we renew uh, our churches? How do we go in a, a, a new and more authentic direction as people who are seeking to follow Jesus um, in accordance with uh, what he taught and what the early church said and what faithful men and women throughout the history of the church have said and done? And as I reflect on the history of the church and the ways in which that renewal has come over and over and over again, uh, there, there's definitely a pattern that develops. Um, and it all seems to stem from uh, the monastic tradition. So I wanted to take some time today to talk about monasticism, uh, monks, nuns, uh, that way of life, uh, where it came from, what, what it's about. Um, and, and I should say, sort of as a caveat, uh, this conversation is going to talk particularly about uh, monasticism in the Western Church. Um, there are plenty of other influential and very important uh, monks and monastic traditions that come out of the Eastern Church, uh, but most of us who are going to be listening and engaging with this uh, exist in the Western portion of the Church, what was the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and then both the Catholic Church and Protestantism. We'll talk about all that today a little bit. Um, but it is it is an important series of movements and continues to be an important movement uh, and, and sort of thrust or uh, instinct within the church uh, that, that men and women um, sort of, um, how we say it, they sort of uh, withdraw into, that's the best way to say it. They, they withdraw from the church at large, um, spend some time reflecting, praying, uh, engaging in disciplines, um, really seeking a relationship with and words from God and experience of the Holy Spirit. And then out of that experience, um, they're able to re-engage the church. And when they do that, they almost always bring new life um, a renewed sense of purpose and meaning, uh, a restored direction, um, and, and, and a more faithful expression of Christianity. How did it all start? Well, as you, are, I'm sure, are well aware, the church in its early years was uh, particularly a Jewish movement. Uh, then it expanded through Paul and uh, the apostles and, and other missionaries into the Gentile world, into the Roman world, um, and quickly became um, a religion, 
a practice of people who were uh, at odds with the Roman Empire. And for those few hundred years, uh, it would be incorrect to say that the church was under constant persecution. Persecution um, happened, certainly it happened in waves. In in, in many cases, it was localized to a particular area of the Roman Empire. Uh, But when we say persecution, we usually mean, you know, being thrown to lions or put into the the Colosseum and uh, gored by uh, animals for the uh, entertainment of the Roman populace. And that and that did happen from time to time, but there were other forms of persecution, of course. Um, and I think the most notable, actually, is that as pagans, Gentiles, Roman citizens, non non Jewish people converted into Christianity, they took on a new way of life, a new perspective, a new understanding of what was important. Um, and in a in a world, in a time and a place that was very religious, uh, we think here of you know Greek and Roman mythology. Uh, all of the shrines and the statues, um, the temples that were dedicated to these various and sundry gods and goddesses, all of that was uh, interwoven in a critical part of uh, the life of the empire. And so when Christians said, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with that, they were seen as weird outcasts, in fact, uh, in many places, traitors, and that was the reason for persecution. Because if you didn't uh, live in a way that was pleasing to the gods, then you were uh, living in a way that was displeasing to the gods, and that brought the condemnation and punishment from those gods upon not only you, but your community. And so it was dangerous to be a Christian uh, in the eyes of Rome and its culture. And so there was other for- there were other forms of persecution in the way of ostracization. Uh, you lost friends, you would lose relationships with family as you became Christian and rejected an entire way of life. Um, and so there was that sort of persecution. Uh, and of course, there was also martyrdom, the, the fact that you would stand up for your faith and you would be uh, persecuted to the, the point of death. In fact, if you've ever heard of Justin Martyr or any of the other uh, notable uh, early Christians who bear the name Martyr, uh, that's not actually a name, it's a title, and it just simply meant that they went to their death uh, claiming to be Christians. And that actually was a badge of honor. A lot of early Christians were looking forward to the moment when they could uh, prove themselves worthy of Christ in the form of being martyred, um, when the church was no longer uh, being put to death, they would still be perhaps flogged Um, persecuted in other ways, physically imprisoned, um, and the title changed from martyr to confessor. So you hear of other uh, mothers and fathers of the church who are such and such the confessor. Um, That was essentially the same thing, but they were no longer being put to death, uh, but they suffered greatly uh, nevertheless. Um, And and everything changed uh, with what we know as what was called the Edict of Milan. This is the point in the Roman... um, history in which Christianity becomes um, no longer, officially no longer persecuted, and then subsequently will become the official religion of Rome. And so all of this um, persecution evaporated, and that coincided also with the influx of the Roman world into the church. And so what was 
a religion that took serious dedication. I mean, you, you were putting your life on the line to become Christian. Um, as you know, I'm sure that there, a lot of those meetings were uh, secret. Uh, the, the church Sunday meetings would be held uh, in homes, uh, perhaps in shops or businesses that would be closed for the day, but they are in essence an underground movement. Um, it becomes out in the open and all of the population suddenly became Christian, and and the process to become Christian prior to that uh, would be through a sponsorship. You would find someone who was Christian. Uh, you likely would start asking questions about it. Uh, you would be intrigued by their way of life or the way they uh, carried themselves in public, um, the way they cared for other people, uh, hopefully, presumably. Um, and you would become intrigued to want to know more about it. And that person would essentially become like a sponsor into Christianity. You would come before uh, the leadership council of the local church, the local group. Um, you, as the, let's, we'll just call it candidate for, for the moment, um, you would actually not be interviewed. It would be your sponsor who would be interviewed, uh, who would attest to your uh, authentic interest, uh, your qualities as a person, your character, and whether or not you are, in fact, um, the type of person that could truly and authentically follow Jesus. And then you would go through a long process of being educated in the history of Israel, the, the scriptures, the books, the teachings of Jesus. And only then, after you uh, had gone through that, it's what's called catechesis, um, if you've ever gone through confirmation in the church, that's the modern very watered down version of that. Um, but you would then go through another series of interviews. Again, your sponsor would be interviewing you and attesting and uh, witnessing to your changed way of life, your authentic acceptance of Jesus as a savior, as your Lord, as the one who uh, has say over your life. Um, and only then would you be admitted. So there was, was a very strict, stringent process by which you become a Christian. So. Well, obviously what happened is there's a self-selection process here where people who are not uh, willing to take it seriously didn't cut it and they, they wanted nothing to do with that. But then when, when Christianity becomes the official religion of Rome, that's eradicated. Everybody comes flooding into the church. Um, what was meetings in houses now becomes meetings in basilicas and, and official Roman um, political and government buildings. Uh, and meetings that were you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people now become hundreds of people at a time, perhaps more than that. And the entrance, the process of becoming uh, initiated into the family of God becomes extraordinarily watered down. And in fact, it's non-existent. You now simply are a Christian by being uh, a Roman citizen. And at that point, there were a whole group of people who were not okay with that, and they left. And I mentioned earlier that the monastic tradition is typically a withdrawal. So they withdrew. They left the Roman uh, cities. They went to the desert of northern Egypt, uh, Alexandria, and those areas. They settled in remote locations, sometimes caves. Um, sometimes they built huts, and, and they became monks. And these were the early monastic uh, mothers and fathers, and the, the most no, notable of those is Anthony the Great, uh, St. Anthony. And so in the fourth century, which was that moment, he and others literally left. Um, and they just, they determined or they reasoned that 
if martyrdom, if true persecution was not an option anymore, well, then the next best thing is to live a life of asceticism, uh, of simplicity, of solitude, in, in many cases, uh, in silence, um, and dedicate your life to Jesus, to God, in the best way they knew how, and that meant leaving the cities and going to the desert. And so you'll hear uh, the desert mothers and fathers is a just a blanket term that we use to refer to these men and women who did this. But in time, uh, they became well-known and people who were seeking a more authentic and true relationship with God, uh, who, who wanted the wisdom of um, disciplined followers would go to the desert to meet with Anthony and others. Uh, and that's why we have, well, there's actually a, a book on my shelf called The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. Um, and it is, it is just a litany of their teachings, their sayings, perhaps some quips here and there that people recorded throughout time. Um, and it's it's the wisdom that they had that they gained from this lifestyle. And so that really set the stage or l sort of launched what we call the monastic movement. And then later in the 6th century, by that point, this guy named Benedict comes on the scene. If you ever heard of the Benedictine monks or the rule of Benedict, uh, that's from him. He was looking at the monastic life. He became a monk um, and determined that it, it wasn't very disciplined. It, it was lax. It was um, ill-regulated. And so he tries to institute um, some sort of order and, again, discipline. In fact, he causes so much trouble that they want to get rid of him, and they attempt to poison him. Um, there's such a, a re response and rejection of, of that effort. So he left. Uh, he even withdrew from the monastic tradition itself, took some some uh, followers who were on board with what he had to say, um, and went and formed his own monastic order. And he developed what's called the Rule of St. Benedict, and that's a, a list of um, rules and regulations, um, ways in which the monks would live. Um, and that became the pattern for all monastic movements uh, after that. Well, you, you'll see if you study them, um, all the renewal movements within monasticism itself and with the church defaulted back to some uh, form of the rule of St. Benedict as a way of life through which uh, men and women can authentically enter into relationship with God and Jesus and by doing that, um, affect change within the life of the church, and that, that becomes crucial. Um, later on, you've probably heard of St. Francis, Francis of Assisi. He was a wealthy guy, actually came from a good family, um, becomes convinced that that's not what Jesus has called him to do or the way that uh, true Christians should be living, and he uh, he he bailed on it. He gave all of his stuff away. He becomes poor. In fact, he stripped himself naked and wandered through the streets carrying a cross, has a public visible uh, declaration of his asceticism, of his devotion to God, of his rejection of the world and its uh, priorities, um, its idols. And the Francis Franciscan order becomes an important uh, service movement, a mission movement within the church. Uh, and again, his teachings, his way of life, his um, seeking an authentic, meaningful relationship with Jesus, um, not only for himself, but in order to to be in the world a servant of God, um, transformed the church. 
Then we get to uh, the late 15th and 16th century uh, to Martin Luther, who many of us know as the founder of Protestantism. Uh, his 95 thesis kicked off the Protestant Reformation. Um, and so if we're Protestant or Catholic, certainly we know about him. Um, but he was in school to be a lawyer and he became, through what he described as sort of a miraculous event, convinced that he was not supposed to be a lawyer. Uh, in fact, the story goes, uh, a, a lightning, a storm uh, kicks up as he's on his way home from class. It was is torrential. It's terrifying for him. It is quite a squall. In fact, a lightning bolt strikes right next to him, and he vowed right then and there that if he uh, survived that storm, he would uh, devote himself to God and become a monk. And he does survive, and he did that. And so he enters a monastery, and it is in his disciplined uh, prayer life, his disciplined reading and study of the scripture that he uh, discovers what it is that he discovers that launches uh, his renewal movement. And it's important to know that he was attempting simply to re renew the church, to uh, move it in a new and better direction, uh, or in a more faithful direction, a biblical direction. Uh, the church did not respond well to that. They end up excommunicating him. Uh, it's a great story. Go read it or read about it. Um, and he ends up founding the, the Protestant movement. Um, Lutheranism, uh, the Reformation, comes out of his time being a monk, right? So we as Protestants, those of us who are um, owe our, our whole line of the church to uh, the monastic way of life. In response to that, on the on the Catholic side of that, comes Ignatius of Loyola, um, and he helps lead um, what we call the Counter Reformation. He or, he founds the Order of the Jesuits. So you've heard of the Jesuit priests or Jesuit monks. Um, that's who that is. They're leading a charge, sort of in opposition to the Reformation. But more importantly, for the life of the church and the Catholic Church, they are a renewal movement uh, in their own right, and they launch a massive missionary movement, uh, public teaching movement, um, and they they will lead to ultimately a, a reformation within the church, the Catholic Church itself. Um, and so, all of that's really obviously crucial to understand uh, that the, the major renewal movements that have happened in the life of the church all stem from this monastic thrust, uh, this need and desire to sort of leave behind the church as the various men and women knew it, to withdraw, as we've said a couple times now, uh, to spend time in disciplined prayer and study, and it is out of that that these movements come, that those men and women are able to re-engage with the church. Um, they become... Uh, more authentically and uh, profoundly uh, witnesses in in the world as a result of it. it you know, they they kind of leave the church, but they end up impacting it in tremendous ways. Um, a, lot, a lot of people say that the, the the renewal comes from the margins of the church, which uh, in some ways makes sense. Often, when we say that, we we mean sort of the, the outcasts. But the truth be told, it is it is those who have willingly put themselves on the margins at, at the outskirts of the church to spend time there, um, again, seeking God. It, it's those people that end up renewing the church. And so the question is, you know, as we face uh, a serious decline in uh, the Western church, particularly the American church, in fact, the pace at which people are leaving the church 
uh, is greater than all renewal movements up to this point and and the American church combined. So you think of the Great Awakening, um, the early movements uh, within uh, sort of Americanism in which the church took hold, and we think about these great revival movements, uh, they are eclipsed by the rate, both the percentage and the number of people now leaving the church. Um, and so you know, that's clearly... Uh, a problem um, for the the life of the church. Uh, now, you should, we should also note that globally, the church is doing great. It's just not in the West. It's places in Asia and Africa in which uh, God is working mightily. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, well, if God is at work in the world and we see these great um, movements of revival happening elsewhere, why isn't it happening here? And I think ultimately we have to do the same thing that the church has done for thousands of years, we got to step back, got to step out, we got to get some distance from the systems, um, the institutions that we've created, get back to who God is seeking what he really wants. And then it's out of that movement that restoration will come. And so that's why monasticism and understanding what it is, uh, is important. And it, and it should be said that every monastic movement is slightly different. It's a mutation of the one that came before it. It's a re-understanding of the rule of Benedict. Uh, it's a re-understanding of what Luther did. It's a re-understanding of what Ignatius and Francis did. Um, and that has happened in the last 30, 40 years in America. In fact, there's an entire movement that really sort of crystallized in the 90s, um, so 30 years ago, called New Monasticism. And in fact, in 2004, there was a group that came together and discussed what what was this movement. Um, there was a guy named um, Jonathan Wilson, who in 98 wrote a book um, called Living Faithfully in a Fragmented World, in which he described this new monasticism. And it actually came out of uh, a writing or a saying, teaching of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said the restoration of the church will surely come only from a new type of monasticism, which has nothing in common with the old, but a complete lack of compromise and a life lived in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount and the discipleship of Christ. Um, and so Bonhoeffer was calling for this monastic movement much, I mean, when he says the old, I don't think he's there talking about old monasticism. He's talking about uh, established Christianity of the day, uh, which is still very much what we have in place um, and it's going to take withdrawing from that and dedicating ourselves to a life lived, as he says, in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount um, and discipleship. And that's exactly what monastic movements have been doing ever since. And so in 2004, this group gets together. Uh, this is six years after um, that book is written. That movement was already underway as far as back even into the 60s and 70s. Um, but was crystallizing, sort of forming into a, a real uh, new monasticism in the 90s. And so in the early 2000s, they get together and they talk about, you know, what is this? What would we uh, hold out as perhaps our rule? Uh, going back to the idea of the rule of St. Uh, Benedict. And they come up with uh, what are the 12 marks. We're not going to go into those uh, now. This has gone on long enough. Um, we'll do that in a subsequent discussion. Um, if you want, if you want to, obviously you can Google that really easily and read what they are. Um, and if you do that, and as you'll see as we get into it, um, when I read them, to me it was like, oh, these are the talking points of the D Democratic Party. Um, and I think that's a 
a legitimate response. And for some people, that's really exciting. And for some people, that's repulsive. Um, but it would be wrong. It would be tragic, actually, if that was our response and we um, re- rejected it as a result. They are very much the talking points of Jesus himself. Uh, we cannot argue with that. We can see Jesus demonstrating this in his actions, saying this in his speech. And to that point, um, and, and, and the, the purpose and the importance of monasticism, uh, Rod Dreher, uh wrote a book a while ago uh, called The Benedictine Option. <laughs> and if you know who he is, he was for 12 years the editor-in-chief of the American Conservative. So he's at the opposite end of the political spectrum, yet he's also uh, espousing the virtues and the need for a return to monasticism in order to renew the church in America. Um, and so it's not a political discussion, uh, it, it, and that's evidenced by the fact that people that you would think are on and are are clearly on both ends of the spectrum politically are saying the same thing. So it's a, it's an apolitical. Uh, movement in many ways. It has political ramifications, of course, right? All of Christianity does. Like that, if you follow Jesus, that necessarily affects how you organize yourself as a society, um, which is what politics is. Um, so we can't we can't ever escape that. But do not for one second hear discussions of communal living and building community and think, oh, that's communism or that's liberalism. It's it's Jesusism, right? It is. It's the teachings of Jesus and, and how we go about organizing that in our local communities today. You know, some of that will look more communal and perhaps uh, more on the left side. Some of it will organize itself more on the right side. Um, but the, the, the point is, these are principles that we, we need to apply. And I guess coming out of the conversation today, the question we have to ask ourselves is when we think about uh, the worries that many of us have about uh, the church and its future in America, uh, not because it's an institution that has to be saved, but rather uh, the people of God, the family of God, the movement of God uh, in our midst is important. I would hope that we all could all agree with that. And so how do we facilitate that? Um, monasticism, some new form of monasticism, is the most obvious answer to that question. Um, and so I would just ask that you spend some time reflecting on that, thinking about that. Perhaps that's new to you, um, researching monasticism, new monasticism, the history of uh, the monastic orders. And we've got to figure out how, okay, so how do we do this here and today, here and now in our world? Um, and I think in the coming weeks, we'll be spending a lot of time. I'm pulling a bunch of books off my shelf uh, that I was reading in the early 2000s and into the teens. Um, that were coming out of these sorts of movements Um, because I I think it's worth talking about and I'm becoming more and more convinced that that is is the answer. Um, So as we talk about the recovery, uh, recovering uh, the faith of our fathers and our mothers, the early church, uh, an authentic faith and how we we incorporate that into our lives, uh, I think we have to have this conversation about monasticism and, and how we allow that to impact us, how we take up that call and that purpose in order that we might be servants to the church for its renewal um, to open the floodgates of God and his spirit uh, to once again move. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing this out or telling a friend about it. 
have any questions, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook as Rev Sam Osborne. I'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next time.